You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and you're very welcome to the National Concert Hall this evening. It's wonderful to look out at over a thousand people who love science, and people tell me in my job continuously, it's just not that popular, you know? And yet, here we are, here tonight to talk about science, to talk about the value of science, to talk about the awesomeness of science, and who better to do so with um, than Richard Dawkins, our guest this evening. Richard is one of the, perhaps, the few scientists who is a household name in these islands. If you ask, and indeed I regularly do, um, if you ask a student or if you ask a member of the public to name a scientist, they will often name somebody who's long dead. And that's because, perhaps, of the way we learn science in school. But here we have tonight a, li a living, breathing, uh, <laughs> and very popular scientist. And Richard is a, um, a, a fellow of the Royal Society in, in Britain, and he is a fellow emeritus of New College in Oxford. But Richard has looked out into the world uh, beyond the spires of Oxford to communicate with and to talk to and to inspire and to provoke members of the public around the world. And he has chosen to do so by writing books. And perhaps that's obvious to most of you because you've read many of his books, but I can tell you I don't know too many scientists who have the, 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 the talent to sit down and write a book that will be read by millions and millions of people. In the 70s, Richard wrote The Selfish Gene, which is a, a, a widely credited bestseller, and he has written many books since then. And tonight we are going to discuss in some detail his, his latest book, which I believe is on sale after uh, our conversation. So we, we will have approximately uh, one hour of, of myself and Richard having a, a scientific chat, I suppose like a window into the common room, as it, as it might, uh, <laughs> might, be, might be seen, where, um, gosh, if you go into any good university these days, hopefully you'll see a couple of professors sitting around talking about big ideas, and that's what we hope to do this evening. And then there'll be opportunity for, for, for you to be involved. And I would, I would ask that when we get to the questions, that you ask a question, uh, and so something with a question mark at the end, and for, um, as opposed to maybe a, a statement or, or a long political rant that you might have. <laughs> <laughs> So, so with that in mind, and glad and warmed by the, uh, the conversations that, uh, that you might have uh, afterward, I think we will uh, invite Richard to begin proceedings tonight by, um, by reading an opening uh, passage from his, his latest book. Richard, thank you so much for being here this evening with us, and I'd invite you to, uh, to begin the proceedings. Thank you. I'm writing this two days after a breathtaking visit to Arizona's Grand Canyon. Breathtaking still hasn't gone the way of awesome, although I fear it may. To many Native American tribes, the Grand Canyon is a sacred place, site of numerous origin myths from the Havasupai to the Zuni, hushed repose of the Hopi dead. If I were forced to choose a religion, that's the kind of religion I could go for. The Grand Canyon confers stature on a religion, outclassing the petty smallness of the Abrahamics, the three squabbling cults which 
through historical accident, still afflict the world. In the dark night, I walked out along the south rim of the canyon, lay down on a low wall, and gazed up at the Milky Way. I was looking back in time, witnessing a scene from 100,000 years ago, for that is when the light set out on its long quest to dive through my pupils and spark my retinas. At dawn the following morning, I returned to the spot, shuddered with vertigo as I realized where I had been lying in the dark, and looked down towards the canyon's floor. Again, I was gazing into the past, two billion years in this case, back to a time when only microbes stirred sightless beneath the Milky Way. If Hopi souls were sleeping in that majestic hush, they were joined by the rock-bound ghosts of trilobites and crinoids, brachiopods and belemnites, ammonites, even dinosaurs. Was there some point in the mile-long evolutionary progression up the canyon strata when something you could call a soul sprang into existence, like a light suddenly switched on? Or did the soul creep stealthily into the world, a dim thousandth of a soul in a pulsating tube worm, a tenth of a soul in a coelacanth, half a soul in a tarsier, then a typical human soul, eventually a soul on the scale of a Beethoven or a Mandela? Or is it just silly to speak of souls at all? Not silly if you mean something like an overwhelming sense of subjective personal identity. Each one of us knows we possess it, even if, as many modern thinkers aver, it is an illusion. An illusion constructed, as Darwinians might speculate, because a coherent agency of singular purpose helps us to survive. Thank you very much, Richard. It struck me as I read your introduction of the, as you say yourself, the awesomeness of science and our ability as scientists to look at the world with rather special glasses. We can see further. What is it about science that allows us to do that? Science is based on evidence, obviously, and logic. So we don't use superstition, we don't use revelation, we don't use prejudice. We are, we are equipped with techniques to try to avoid subjective bias. Of course, we, we long for our theories to be proved right, and we, we identify with them. But we have methods in place to make sure that we are not, not biased in favor of them. So you see this especially in medical science, where the double-blind control experiment, um, you're, you're testing, say, a, a, a possible drug against a control, which has no active ingredient. And some of the patients have the experimental and some of them have the control dose. But the double-blind technique means that neither the patients, nor the doctors, nor the nurses who administer the drugs, nobody knows which patients have the, the experimental and which patients have the control. It's, a, it's locked up in, in, in numbers. And only after the experiment is finished do you then decode it and, and say, now that, that guards against the inevitable bias, especially in medical science, where there's a lot of subjective judgment comes into 
judging how well a patient is, for example. Indeed, it's, I'm often reminded that scientists are human too, and that we, yeah. we will bring all of those biases to bear, and so we have built in these safeguards. As you, as you were speaking there, um, particularly toward the end of that passage, you, you, you veered toward, the, I suppose, more biological questions, and I thought a, a great hero of yours, Darwin, and indeed Wallace, at the time that these gentlemen were alive, there were two huge questions in biology, and they were perhaps, what is life? And what is the mind? And since uh, they've been around, we've, we've come a long way toward answering at least the first question, what is life? And so I'd love for you to, to tell us if, if Darwin or indeed Wallace or indeed both of them were somehow to defy the laws of physics and biology and be with us here tonight, what would you say to them? What's happened since their work? This actually sort of happened to me in a way. A Japanese television company dressed an English actor up as Darwin and brought him to my house. Um, Uninvited? <laughs> and my task was to bring him up to date. Okay, um, okay, right. And, um, Tutorial with uh, yes. Professor Dawkins. Yeah. So, so I, um, I greeted him at the door and I was bowed very low and said, delighted to meet you, Mr. Darwin. Um, and then he asked me what had, what had happened since his death. Um, and uh, the answer that I gave was Mendelian genetics and then DNA, because in Darwin's own time, he was much troubled by a critic of his theory, an engineer called Fleming Jenkin, who pointed out that if heredity was the way the Victorians thought it was, which was blending inheritance, mm -hmm. they thought that we were a kind of mixture of our two parents, like mixing two liquids together. If you mix white paint and black paint, you get gray. And no matter how many times you mix gray and gray in the next generation, you don't get back to black and white. And so the variation simply disappears. Every generation, the variation disappears, which means that there would be no variation left for natural selection to choose among. Well, Darwin was troubled by this. He shouldn't have been really because it's a manifest fact that the variation doesn't disappear when we're not more similar to each other than our grandparents were. Nevertheless, it did, tr did trouble him. And the answer to the riddle was solved by Mendel. Mm. Um, genes are either there or they're not there. Every single gene in you came from one and only one of your four grandparents, one and only one of your eight great-grandparents, etc. Um, so they are digital. They, are, they don't mix, they don't blend, uh, they, they are watertight things. So I explained this to Darwin and, ex and explained to him... <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a very lifelike, he was a very good actor. Did he have the beard? He, oh, of course yeah, he had the yeah. beard. Um, he had all sorts of grease paint on him, which kept on falling off in the light. The, the makeup girl had to come up and sort of touch him up all the time. Um, so I explained to him um, what had happened with Mendelian genetics, and, he, and he, was, he said, yes, that's it, that's it. He's doing a very good sort of old man acting. Excellent. Um, yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, and, and but so the, the answer to your question is, yes, I would talk about um, Mendelian genetics, which is digital in the sense that a gene is either there or not there. But Watson and Crick genetics is even more digital, because mm. even within a gene, you've got, oh, miles and miles of com computer tape, 
it, um, it's quaternary, not binary, but otherwise it is absolutely the same as computer tape. Yes, indeed, in that sense of the programming that, that comes with it. And, um, and so I suppose one of the questions, I, I'm a physicist, and so when I think of gravity, I think, well, gravity here is going to be the same as it might be on a planet orbiting any other star around our, um, in, in our Milky Way. And so I, I would wonder then, what about, what about Darwin and Wallace's work? Do you feel that will apply everywhere? Is there a universality about it? It's very interesting. I mean, it, it, I suppose in a way it's a kind of article of faith in physics, just to think that yes, the laws indeed. of physics are the same everywhere. Um, but indeed, they're not, actually, right? Because at different scales they apply, but... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, there's an essay in the book, In Science and the Soul, um, called Universal Darwinism, in which I do stick my neck out and say that whatever else, however alien life on other planets, I'm sure there is life on other planets, however alien life on other planets may be, there's one thing I'm confident of, it will be Darwinian life. Hmm. It will have evolved by gradual degrees using something logically equivalent to Darwinian natural selection, although the details will no doubt be very different, it probably won't be based on DNA, um, maybe the, the genetic code will be very different. Um, but it will be Darwinian, and I, I argue this by going through all the alternatives that have ever been suggested and showing that each one of them not only has no evidence in favour of it, but even if there was evidence in favour of it, it couldn't do the job. It's not a big enough theory to do the job of explaining complex biological adaptation. And yet proponents of some of these... Uh alternative theories uh, that they still exist. I wonder when you, when you teach this, do your students often arrive at the wrong conclusion and how well, do you negotiate that then? I mean, the only serious competitor, I suppose, is Lamarckism, mm -hmm. which was proposed about 50 years before Darwin. Um, the, it's a combination of the use and disuse principle and the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So the use and disuse principle is that the more an animal uses a bit of itself, the bigger it gets or the stronger it gets. Mm. And we know this is true of muscles. Um, if you exercise your muscles, they grow. And um, if you add to that the inheritance of acquired characteristics, if an animal uses its biceps a lot, the biceps grow big and then the children inherit the enlarged biceps. And so that is a kind of evolution. This is how the giraffe came about, I suppose, right? Reaching that's for how those. that's <laughs> been the Lamarckian, yes. But if you think about it, even, of course, inheritance of acquired characteristics doesn't happen. It's not true. But even if it were true, and it's been suggested that, I mean, Ernst Meyer and others have suggested that it might be true on other, other planets. Even if it were true, it's not a good enough theory to explain it because, well, there's no law that says the, the more you use something, it's the, the bigger it should, it should get. Mo mostly, the more you use something, it gets worn out. Mm. Um, if you, if you, I mean, it's true that if you walk around on your bare feet, your feet get tougher. But the natural impulse is to think that if you walk around on your bare feet, they'll, they'll get worn out. Worn, worn out. Mm. The reason they get tougher is, of course, that Darwinian natural selection has equipped us with a tendency to get our feet tougher. Um, but or in any case, muscles are just one thing. Mm. If you think about something really complex and beautiful like an eye, it simply cannot be true that the more you use an eye, the better it gets. Why should it? Why should, why should a lens become more transparent as photons wash through it? 
How could you possibly evolve a focusing mechanism, an iris diaphragm, to regulate the stop of the, of the eye? Almost nothing except muscles and possibly bones and skin um, could, could possibly use the use and disuse principle. The um, use of rational thought that you, you apply to, to uh, critique and to, to, to really question what is known is, is wonderful. And um, I, I, at the time when, when these theories were, were developed, and, like, how was the, the sense of human uh, framed in that argument? We were no longer so special, I suppose. Darwin devoted a lot of several of his books to making us not special. Mm. Um, the expression of the emotions, the descent of man. He, <clears throat> he went out of his way to remove the barrier between humans and other animals. Nowadays, we sort of take that more for granted, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Um, well, except in the moral and social sphere. I mean, we, we tend to elevate humanity to a, a special ethical pedestal. Uh, for example, in the abortion debate, um, we treat a human fetus mm. as more deserving of moral concern than, than an adult mammal of another species, although the adult mammal has a brain, nerves, capacity to feel pain and so on. The human fetus has not. And, and are, these, are these things that have been societally constructed, um, in your view, or um, you know, where did ethics come from well, then? And that, that, that particular one, I think, is sort of left over from the earlier time when, when people didn't even realize that we were close cousins of other animals. Now we understand that we are close cousins yes. of, of chimpanzees and gorillas and, and slightly more distant cousins of monkeys and so on. But in a sense, I suppose we are rather special in that we have very large brains, right? We are uh, very special. I mean, we're the only species that has true language. Yes. Um, plenty, all, lots of species have communication of one sort or another, but we have proper language with grammar, um, indefinite capacity to speak about complicated things that are not immediately present. Um, and that has led to culture and the extraordinary uniqueness of the human species, that, uh, this magnificent concert hall we're in, and this is something, you know... Yeah, here we are, and we yeah. can ask that question. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder then, I, I often wonder, with the, the slow pace at which evolution or biological evolution proceeds, is, is that now being somehow superseded or challenged uh, by, say, cultural evolution? Yes, I, I mean, to a, to a large extent, we, we, if you look at the evolution of technology, the evolution of the aeroplane, the motor mm. car, the, um, it's, it's not that long since the Wright brothers did their first... Um, it's only about, what, 60 years between the Wright brothers and Armstrong walking on the moon. Which is incredible, isn't, isn't it? Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Um, so, and, this, and you can trace the step-by-step -step evolution of the plane, of the computer, the car, but it's many orders of magnitude faster than the biological evolution, which is limited to generation time. And do you fear that perhaps things like artificial intelligence might somehow catch up on us? You know, will the, will the human be an inferior species? It, well, it's probably not the right term to use, but an, an inferior form compared to an artificial well, uh, equivalent. People that I respect, like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk, have voiced such fears. Mm. Uh, and yes, I think there's good reason to, to think that this, this might happen. Whether it would be a bad thing, I'm not so sure. I mean, um, <laughs> they might make a better job of it than we do. That's true. And um, 
I'm going to invite you now to read uh, a second piece uh, for us, if, if you would uh, do so, and it's, it's about the, uh, the public scientist. So is this the... This um... is our, our second piece, and it, it goes to the book in order there. Okay. Here we are. Right, okay. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, this was a lecture that was broadcast on BBC. Um, it was um, of a series called Sounding the Century um, at the end of the last of the, tw the 20th century, looking forward to the 21st century. So I was being asked, along with an, a, a number of other people, um, artists, historians, and so on, I was representing science and looking forward to the 21st century. With trepidation and humility, I find myself the only scientist in this list of lecturers. Does it really fall to me alone to sound the century for science, to reflect on the science that we bequeath to our heirs? The 20th could be science's golden century, the age of Einstein, Hawking, and relativity, of Planck, Heisenberg, and quantum theory, of Watson, Crick, Sanger, and molecular biology, of Turing, von Neumann, and the computer, of Wiener, Shannon and cybernetics, of plate tectonics and radioactive dating of the rocks, of Hubble's redshift and the Hubble telescope, of Fleming, Florey and penicillin, of moon landings, and let's not duck the issue of the hydrogen bomb. As George Steiner, he was one of the other lecturers, as George Steiner has noted, more scientists are working today than in all other centuries combined. Though also, to put that figure into alarming perspective, more people are alive today than have died since the dawn of recorded history. Of the dictionary meanings of sensibility, the, the lecture was called Science and Sensibility. Of the dictionary meanings of sensibility, I intend discernment, awareness, and the capacity for responding to aesthetic stimuli. One might have hoped that by century's end, science would have been incorporated into our culture and our aesthetic sense have risen to meet the poetry of science. Without reviving the mid-century pessimism of C.P. Snow, I reluctantly find that, with only two years to run, these hopes are not realized. Science provokes more hostility than ever, sometimes with good reason, often from people who know nothing about it and use their hostility as an excuse not to learn. Depressingly, many people still fall for the discredited cliché that scientific explanation corrodes poetic sensibility. Astrology books outsell astronomy. Television beats a path to the door of second-rate conjurers masquerading as psychics and clairvoyants. Cult leaders mine the millennium and find rich seams of gullibility. Heaven's Gate, wacko, poison gas in the Tokyo underground. The biggest difference from the last millennium is that folk Christianity has been joined by folk science fiction. It should have been so different. The previous millennium, there was some excuse. In 1066, if only with hindsight, Halley's Comet could forebode Hastings, sealing Harold's fate and Duke William's victory. Comet Hale-Bopp in 1997 should have been different. Why do we feel gratitude when a newspaper astrologer reassures his readers that Hale-Bopp was not directly responsible for Princess Diana's death? <laughs> and what is going on when 39 people, driven by a theology compounded of Star Trek and the Book of Revelation, 
commit collective suicide, neatly dressed and with overnight bags packed by their sides, because they all believed that Hale-Bopp was accompanied by a spaceship come to raise them to a new plane of existence. Incidentally, the same Heaven's Gate commune had ordered an astronomical telescope to look at Hale-Bopp. They sent it back when it came because it was obviously defective. It failed to show the accompanying spaceship. <laughs> Tell me this, do you get the emails from the, uh, you know, I don't want to label them poorly, but you Why get not? the... not? Okay, the wackos, right? <laughs> You get the email, dear professor, uh, I have discovered a device that like, um, goes against the second Perpetual law of thermodynamics. Motion, yeah, Indeed, motion. yeah. Did you I'm, ever get these I'm, emails? I've disproved Einstein. No, I, I think physicists get that more, actually. I'm, I'm sure you get lots of perpetual motion machines. Yeah, quite a lot. And, yes. um, I, but, but I think people are often more confounded when you write back to them and, and then you go, oh, what have you done? You know, yes, yes. <laughs> you want to ask the questions. Yeah. You, you use the great line there, it should have been so different. Yes. Um, the 20th century should have been the, the century, well, it arguably was the century of science, but not in the, in the zeitgeist, not in the public eye. Why? I'm not a great expert on the zeitgeist. I mean, I, 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 I don't know why. Um, I get enormous encouragement when I come to a, a, an event mm. like this and so many people come and um, at other literary festivals, my scientific colleagues and I find that huge numbers of people turn up. So I think there is, a, there is great interest in science. Um, and uh, maybe we're sort of polarizing into different, different groups, some of whom are interested in others aren't. Perhaps that's so, and I, I often wonder what, what does it say perhaps about us scientists if um, the worldview that we hold and the work that we do is, is seen as alternative for so many people. Um, like so many people tell me, I, I love what you do, but gosh, don't ask me any questions. Or, yeah. you know, I gave up yes. physics when I was 14. Yes. Well, I think I didn't do justice to your first question, really, because I went straight into double blind control trials and didn't dwell at all on the poetry of science. Okay. And I think that's mm. something which um, we could do more with. I, I fear that science teaching, in schools especially, often tends to dwell on the practical and the usefulness of science, mm. which is great, of course, it's important, and we do need practicing scientists to be trained, but the analogy with music comes to mind, that you, you can appreciate music in, in a deep way without actually being able to play an instrument. And for some people, music appreciation might be ruined if they were forced to do five-finger exercises. And similarly, science appreciation at an aesthetic level might be spoiled if you're forced to learn to play the Bunsen burner. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, and, and we think this is a, a new thing, um, that this, this sort of discovery-led approach to teaching. In fact, uh, one of my, my, my uh, former, former colleagues, a guy for, called Fitzgerald, a, an Irish physicist, he wrote in 1868, I think it was, that the mere acquisition of facts does not constitute a scientific education. Yeah. And he yeah. says it must go far beyond that. Yeah. But yet we have education systems where we ask children to learn 
learn off, to rote learn, yep. huge reams of text. Yes. And I, I would ask, well, what's the point? Yes, I you know? um, the Americans have this uh, wonderful uh, organization called the American Association for the Advancement of, uh, of Science, the AAAS as we call it. And they have this uh, Project 2061, which is the idea that when Hale, um, Halley's Comet returns in that year, um, that the American population arguably they're going the wrong direction, will not just come to understand science, but they will have acquired scientific habits of mind. And I wonder, are, is this part of the, the key in our education and in public awareness of science, that people must start engaging with science and thinking scientifically? It's impressive, isn't it, that you can predict exactly when a comet will return. I yeah. mean, that's, that's something that Old Testament prophets don't, didn't do. <laughs> um, uh, and astrologers don't do either. I mean, pr predicting precisely that, that such and such a comet will return. And we've been able to do this for quite a long time. Yes, yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And predicting eclipses, too, to the, to the, to the second. And we've no, we no longer, of course, um, associate such cosmic events with, um, I suppose, dramatic outside interference, but we now understand the cosmic ballet that, that, that dictates them. But those habits of mind, what if you were going to advise a minister of education about the scientific curriculum, be it at primary or secondary school level, what sort of things would you wish for a young mind to engage with? I think I would recommend the, the Carl Sagan School of Science Education mm. as opposed to what I call the non-stick frying pan. <laughs> but, um, if we're thinking about justifying space, space exploration, the Carl Sagan is looking outwards and, and being overwhelmed by the romance of the stars and the galaxies. The non-stick frying pan school says, well, the, the space race was important because the non-stick frying pan was a byproduct of it. Yes. So that's bringing it down to the level of boring, mundane frying pans, mm. as opposed to the romance of the, of the stars. And I would like to see science promoted in a, in a Carl Sagan-like, poetic, aesthetic way. And he did something rather special. Rather like yourself, he looked outward from, from academia, and he wished to speak with huge groups of people and to, to uh, provoke them and to, I suppose, in a sense, to educate them. And, well, why is it, do you think, that there was the Carl Sagan effect, interestingly, where other scientists looked down on Professor Sagan because of his outward look? Have you ever experienced that? He was, he was not elected to the National Academy, which is the American equivalent of the Royal Society. Indeed, yeah. Um, and it's almost certain that, that that was jealousy because he was popular and uh, spoke to the public. I, I have been elected to the Royal Society, so I don't have that complaint, mm. and I'm very grateful for that. I, it, I don't know what people say behind my back, of course. But, but, uh, <laughs> I'm sure they'll tweet you to tell yeah, you what yeah, they yeah, think. Yeah. But um, like, it, perhaps it's not something that young scientists see of, of value in their careers. And um, I'd like, if, if you were a, a university dean, would you look upon uh, outreach and public engagement in a positive way? I think I remember that the National Science Foundation in America had a policy at one time, when they gave a research grant to somebody, it actually laid down that a certain proportion of the researcher's time had to be spent 
mm. in outreach had to be spent in that's right in, in communicating what they were doing to the general public i don't know if that still applies but it, it, it certainly does here in ireland does uh, it? the, the oh, national science um, funder which is called science foundation ireland it yes. asks that we we not just do it but we show impact from doing it as Good. well so yeah. which, which is excellent yeah. it, when we're talking about education i think about learning and you, you mentioned the large brain that that we humans have and that we're able to learn in in a, in a i suppose in a rather sophisticated way but many people will say to me gosh you know i'm just not wired that way for science and i i don't buy that what do you think well it's much of science is mathematical and i think some people do have problems with mathematics um but you can get a long way without mm. you can get a long way um with the sheer beauty of it and and some of the astonishing facts that do, I once read a children's book about trying to explain the distances of the stars in the solar system, and it, it encouraged children to go out into the sports field with a soccer ball mm. representing the sun, and then to scale, you walk, whatever it is, 25 paces, and, and you put a pinhead down mm. as the Earth, and then you walk, I don't know, 100 yards, and you put down a tennis ball, ping pong ball for, for Jupiter. I, I'm not, I can't remember what, they, what the thing is. Um, so you're still, much, still pretty much on the, on the playing field. Mm. And then to get to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, take another soccer ball and walk 2,000 miles. That's to the nearest star. Gosh, yeah. yeah. These things are incredible, aren't yeah. they? I, I don't know about you, but they continue to amaze me. And it's, it's what always connects me, with, reconnects me with science. And, I have to say, I found in your, in your own writing that it, it allows me to, to see science afresh. In, uh, and I think that's often the good sign of, 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 of good writing in, in, in popular science books, is that it, it encouraged scientists, too, to look again at their discipline. Um, science ought to be a vehicle for great literature, for great poetry, actually. And, and, and you make that point that Carl Sagan sh should have perhaps been considered, maybe he was, for a Nobel Prize. He certainly should. I don't know whether he ever was, but I think only one scientist has ever won the Nobel Prize. And who was that? Henri Bergson, which is a terrible precedent. I mean, he, he was a mystic. Um, <laughs> uh, he, was, he was kind of, in, in some ways, anti-scientific. He, he, he believed that, living, that life had a sort of special mystical quality which wasn't present in the rest of physics. He, which he called Elan Vital, um, which provoked Julian Huxley into a satirical remark that a train might be driven by Elan Locomotif. <laughs> Was he late Victorian by any chance? He, no, 1920s. Oh, okay, because mm. I, I realised that in the late Victorian uh, era there was a huge amount of mysticism going on in, yes. in academic circles. You, you talk again about the, the, you mentioned learning and you, you did mention that some people are perhaps just not that wired to, to do mathematics. So where, where would you stand on the, the nature-nurture, um, perhaps it's a false dichotomy, I don't know what you think, but with regard to learning certain topics, say science? Well, it's a, it is difficult. Um, and the, the, if, if, you're, if you're asking the question, I mean, I think the best way to put the question would be how much of the variation which you mm. see, how much of the variance which you see is attributable to genetic variance and how much of the variance is not. And this is kind of measurable. Um, you can measure it, perhaps the, the most acute way of doing it is by twin studies, mm. Mm. where you take monozygotic twins, identical twins, who are known to have the same genes, 
and you measure the resemblance between them in whatever quality you're looking for, whether it's intelligence or musical ability or mathematical ability, whatever it is, and you compare that with fraternal twins who you know how many genes they have in common, or you could compare it with just random members of the population. And to the extent that monozygotic twins resemble each other more than fraternal twins, and you can, with a bit of luck, you can find some twins who've unfortunately, through some accident, been separated at birth, and there are a few dozen of those, which have been much studied, as you can imagine. They must be followed around. They're followed around like <laughs> hell, yes. Um, and um, you get a different, a different answer for that. The heritability is, is the name given to the proportion of the variance which can be attributed to genes. Heritability for some things is much higher than others. And for IQ, it's pretty high. Um, and for, I forget what it is. In fact, for, for height, it's something. And for weight, it's something else. Weight is probably lower because it depends how much you eat. Um, so, you're saying so yes, it, 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 it can be sort of measured, but there are numerous conceptual pitfalls in doing, in doing that kind of thing, and it's, much, it's very controversial. Indeed, and I suppose it's often been used as the excuse right, for, for the lack of proper education, because education can arguably fill the gap. Exactly, right? and it, it, it's an appalling thing to say, to say oh, because so-and-so is just beyond redemption, beyond help, we, mm. we're not going to bother to educate them. Absolutely. We, we talk about this idea of the, the growth mindset in education yeah. and that well, one must look at the learner and think what he or she needs in order yeah. for them to learn. Actually, you do mention about this, creating this need for learning when you talk about language and why English speakers, why we tend to be so poor at learning foreign languages. We're They're, appalling, aren't we? Yeah. I, I, it, I, I feel so ashamed um, when, I, when I meet almost not quite every other country, European country, but many, many European countries. And people often say, oh, well, you don't need to bother. And I actually had a colleague when I was trying to learn German because I thought it would be good for my scientific education. So he said, oh, you don't want to bother with that. It'll only, make them, it'll only encourage them. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have a prescribed method to improve. Well, I, I, I don't buy the, the, the view that says, because English is so widely spoken, we needn't bother. I think it's, it's slightly different. I think that in Europe people are constantly bombarded with English. They get American films mm. and, and um, in, in many cases they simply get subtitles in their own, in their own language. And so they, they, they pick up English in the, very, in the very easiest way possible. Now what happens to us, I don't know what it was like in Ireland, but in England, during the recent French election, I sort of thought, oh, good, I got a chance to practice my school French. Not a bit of it. You get about two seconds on the BBC of the French orator's speech. And then it's faded out, and you get the voice of an interpreter. Why and what's wrong with subtitles? Hmm. What is wrong with subtitles? It would be such a, I mean, occasionally you, you, I get a chance to listen to an, an orator. Orators are good because they talk slowly and, and loudly, and they measure in a measured way. They pause between phrases and things. You occasionally can hear one. And I really feel I'm making progress with language when, when I do that. Mm. And it, it's such a missed opportunity. I've happened to have met socially both the director general of the BBC and the opposite number, Channel 4, and made my pitch to them. And what they said was, oh, we never thought of that. <laughs> the rational mind strikes again, so right? So what, what, what does RTE do? Do, do, do you also have, have, have 
we do. Of a, course, a, a we, we have dubbed in for, for non-English or indeed Irish um, um, languages. We would have the dub, you know. But uh, it, ironically, we, we we our national language is not English; it's Irish. Yes. And, but but yet, I, most people cannot speak Irish. Well, they they may do so in school, but the majority of people don't speak Irish in their day-to-day -day, uh, existence. And I. It's a real pity, um, but the, 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 perhaps as you've written, there hasn't ever been a strong need for us to learn Irish because no, we, we, no. We, we're, we're getting on quite well, thank you, speaking English. Um, so, but well, I mean, you can say that again. If, 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 if Brexit happens, um, <laughs> the, the Irish will be the only nation in Europe who, who are native speakers of the dominant language in, of, of, of the European Union. Yes, and the former, um, the former Prime Minister of Luxembourg, uh, Juncker, he, he recently said that, uh, well, English isn't as popular as it That's used right. to be. And I, yeah. I thought, gosh, he's, he, he's not quite on the money then, because as you've rightly said, English is, it's, it is the, uh, the lingua he, franca, isn't he, it? He was being deliberately provocative. Of course he was. Him, and I, I, don't, I don't blame him. <laughs> no. um, but, but, I mean, the, the Irish are going to be in a very good position. Oh, lucky us. Yes. We're also looking for research funds as well, if you, yeah. uh, if you want to mention that. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm seeking Irish citizenship. I don't <laughs> I'm sure my university would jump at the chance of offering you a chair. <laughs> um, I hope my president is here this evening for him to hear that. But um, uh, Richard, I, could I invite you to read uh, another piece for us, yes. perhaps on the, the dead hand of Plato, um, which is, is marked. Is, is the it's the first one? pink marking there. Thank you. What percentage of the British population lives below the poverty line? When I call that a silly question, a question that doesn't deserve an answer, I'm not being callous or unfeeling about poverty. I care very much if children starve or pensioners shiver with cold. My objection, and this is just one of many examples, is to the very idea of a line, a gratuitously manufactured discontinuity in a continuous reality. Who decides how poor is poor enough to qualify as below the poverty line? What is, what is to stop us moving the line and thereby changing the score? Poverty, wealth, is a continuously distributed quantity which might be measured as, say, income per week. Why throw away most of the information by splitting a continuous variable into two discontinuous categories above and below the line? How many of us lie below the stupidity line? <laughs> How many runners exceed the fast line? How many Oxford undergraduates lie above the first-class line? Yes, we in universities do it too. Examination performance, like most measures of human ability or achievement, is a continuous variable whose frequency distribution is bell-shaped. Yet. British universities and Irish, I gather, insist on publishing a class list in which a minority of students that receive first-class degrees, rather a lot obtain seconds, nowadays subdivided into upper and lower seconds, and a few get thirds. That might make sense if the distribution had three or four peaks with deep valleys in between, but it doesn't. Anybody who has ever marked an exam knows that the bottom of one class is separated from the top of the class below by a small fraction of the distance 
that separate it from the top of its own class. This fact alone points to a deep unfairness in the system of discontinuous classification. Examiners go to great trouble to assign a score, perhaps out of a hundred, to each exam script. Scripts are double or even triple marked by different examiners who may then argue the nuances of whether an answer deserves 55 or 52 marks. Marks are scrupulously added up, normalized, transformed, juggled and fought over. The final marks that emerge and the rank orders of students are as richly informative as conscientious examiners can achieve. But then what happens to all that richness of information? Most of it is thrown away in reckless disregard for all the labor and nuanced deliberation and adjusting that went into the marking process. The students are bundled into three or four discrete classes, and that is all the information that penetrates outside the examiner's room. Cambridge mathematicians, as one might expect, finesse the discontinuity and leak the rank order. It became informally known that Jacob Bronowski was the senior wrangler of his year. Bertrand Russell, the seventh wrangler of his year, and so on. At other universities, too, tutors' testimonials may say things like, not only did she get a first, I can tell you in confidence that the examiners ranked her number three of her entire class of 106 in the university. That is the kind of information that really counts in a letter of recommendation. And it is that very information that is wantonly thrown away in the officially published class list. I, I must say, I, really, I underlined the phrase discontinuity in a continuous reality as it, it, it spoke to me. And I, you went on to, to paint a number of examples. And some of the simpler ones included the voting age, for instance. Yes. Yeah. I suppose that you've got to have a, a, a cut-off with voting age. So there are times when, although it actually is continuous, you have to make a, a, a division. But there's nothing magic about the stroke of midnight on your 18th birthday. But yet I've heard psychologists on radio recently when we had a referendum to see whether... We're, we're very fond of them, by the way, here, whether uh, we should have uh, a president... I think it was lowering the voting, or the, the age at which a person can become president to, uh, from 35 down to, I think, 20 or some low number. And psychologists came on and spoke about the higher order function of a young person not being comparable to an older person. And I got a little concerned about it, but the, the people were constructing these reasons for not having um, the, the... They couldn't see the arbitrary line, basically. Yes, mm. yeah. I mean, there, you see arbitrary lines all over the place. And, uh... and sometimes they matter. So, for instance, we're, we're having a national conversation at the moment about, about abortion. And as, as you may know, many young Irish women have to travel to Britain every day in order for them to, uh, to seek the medical care that they're entitled to. And... Um, much of this debate will come down to the moment at which we believe life begins. And you had comment on, on well, that in your right. book. Um, I mean, clearly, you, you, you start as a single cell, mm. and, and then it divides, becomes two, four, and so on. Um, and there's a kind of psychological desire to draw a line in this continuous... It's a continuous process. You don't suddenly become a person on some particular time. You, you can be a tenth of a person, a quarter of a person, half a person. Um, 
why insist on drawing lines when we have a continuous change? It's the same with evolution. Mm. Uh, we are descended from species that were different from us. Um, at every point in that backward, if you go backwards in time, every, every individual ever born would have been classified in the same species as its parents and its children. And yet if you could do that enough times with enough generations, you get back to a fish. Yes. Um, so between our fish ancestor and ourselves, every single generation was the same species as the next generation. So how do we differ? Is it just by virtue of the fact that we don't have a continuous line of fossils? It's, it's, yes. If we had a continuous line of fossils, we couldn't name in a very easy way. We'd have to draw arbitrary lines. So the, the difference between humans and chimpanzees, well, I mean, the common ancestor we share with chimpanzees lived six or seven million years ago. Uh, and as it happens, all the intermediates are extinct. Um, but if they were not extinct, if they survived, you could mate, there would be a continuous daisy chain of mating possibility, mm. fertile mating, all the way between us and chimpanzees. Um, and if you wanted to maintain a separation between humans and chimpanzees, you'd have to have courts of law, rather like they had in South Africa in the apartheid time. Mm. Does this person count as human? Um, Gosh. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sheer accident that the intermediates happen to be extinct. And my, my, my reaction to that when I said, gosh, is to does this person count as human is perhaps unhelpful when having a, a, a reasoned argument about at what point should we no longer allow a person to terminate a, exactly. a, a, a life. Another example. So, like, what guidance can we take from this rational approach? How, how, how should law evolve? I think, in a humane way, try to judge the amount of suffering caused, uh, the amount of pleasure and pain that's, that's involved. Um, in the case of the abortion one, which is rather more, perhaps more pressing, mm. um, if you... Uh, if you take, say, the, the Roman Catholic official position, which is that personhood begins at conception, in the, in the words of the Monty Python song, you're a Catholic the moment Dad came. <laughs> <laughs> every sperm is sacred, every, yeah. Every, every sperm. <laughs> um, I mean, the, 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 the way to tease Catholics is to, is to say, what happens to identical twins where they... they, they I mean, as you know, it, it splits after conception. Which twin got the soul? <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose you're, you're, Richard Dawkins is now saying a soul is a discrete unit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so we, we, we don't have to draw lines. And so ask yourself the question, how much suffering would an abortion cause? So a, a late abortion might cause suffering because the, the embryo has a brain and nervous system might very well be able to feel pain. Mm. An early abortion couldn't possibly cause suffering. hasn't got a nervous system. Um, what does cause suffering is, the, is the, the mother who has to go through with a pregnancy she doesn't want. Um, but if you're talking about the, 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 the rights of the embryo itself, um, until it has a nervous system, it is incapable of suffering and 
even a late embryo has uh, much less capacity to suffer, obviously, than an adult pig or something, or an adult cow. Yes, and, but does it surprise you, the reaction to such a rational stream of thought? Well, it's the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, which is, the, which is the, what I'm talking about in The Dead Hand of Plato, this, in, this frantic desire to draw lines, to draw a line somewhere in the course of embryology, to draw a line between humans and other species. Mm. It's, it's the same tyranny of the discontinuous mind, the dead hand of Plato. Can you explain the platonic link there? Well, Plato um, being, I mean, had this sort of Greek geometer's view of things. So, so a, a, a circle, a, a right-angled triangle, a trapezium, these are perfect shapes um, defined mathematically and having a kind of abstract reality sort of hanging out there somewhere. Was it and the ideal The human. ideal yeah. shape, the mm. ideal circle, the ideal right triangle. Um, so an actual triangle that you draw is an imperfect approximation mm. to the ideal. I mean, if you actually draw a right-angled triangle and measure these, the sides, you won't get an exact fit to Pythagoras' theorem because of the inaccuracies of the thing. Um, but the Pythagoras' theorem proof applies to the abstract. That's fine where, where geometry is concerned, but Plato and Aristotle applied the same essentialist thinking to other things like living creatures. The ideal rabbit. An actual rabbit is an imperfect approximation to the ideal abstract rabbit. And if you think that, then you're not going to be very sympathetic to the idea that rabbits could evolve into, into something else. Because there never will be. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, Ernst Meyer, the great, one of the great founding fathers of the neo-Darwinian synthesis, blamed essentialism, the dead hand of Plato, for why it took so long for evolution to arrive on the scene in, in human history of science. Why, why it, we had to wait until the mid-19th century before Darwin and Wallace arrived. And that's interesting. I wondered, two gentlemen in two different parts of the world independently came up with the same theory. And they, um, they co-presented their work uh, then when they returned to Britain in, in an excellent show of gentlemanly uh, scholarly behavior. But yes. why, was it just coincidence, do you believe? Well, they were both traveling naturalists. Mm. Um, they were, I mean, they, they both traveled in South America, and then Wallace traveled in Southeast Asia. Um, they were both English. Um, there's a third candidate, whose name is Patrick Matthew, who was Scottish, and he allegedly thought of natural selection independently, indeed before either Darwin or Wallace, um, but he buried it in the appendix to a book on naval timber. <laughs> and, and somewhat understandably, Darwin didn't spot this. Uh, um, he, he was, it was brought to his attention by Patrick Matthew himself, who wrote a, a complaining letter to the editor of the Gardener's Chronicle, which Darwin did actually see. And Darwin apologized and uh, mentioned Patrick Matthew in, his, in the second edition of The Origin of Species. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, I sort of think that if Patrick Matthew had really understood that he was sitting on the, the explanation for everything about life, not just trees suitable for building ships, 
he would have made more of a song and dance about it than the appendix to this book. That gets to the point, doesn't it? Because I, I've often seen claims in, in material physics where somebody would say, oh, this unusual nanostructure, a tiny material, they'd say, well, I took an image of that 20 years before the person who's credited with discovering right. it. Yeah. But the point is, they saw it and didn't realize what it was. So, you exactly. know, if you knew the sky was blue yes. versus seeing yes. the sky is blue are yes. very different things. Exactly. Um, well, Darwin and Wallace really did understand the magnitude of what they'd discovered. Both of them did. And as you say, they, they were very gentlemanly about it. Darwin, at first, when he received the momentous letter from Wallace, because um, Darwin had not, not published his, his theory. It was, he was, was written down. for ages, wasn't he? Yes, and yeah. he'd, he'd, he'd written a, a really rather long um, summary, which he gave to his wife with instructions to publish it in the event of his death. Mm. Um, so there's no question but that Darwin did to think of it first. But Wallace got it independently. Both of them got it, interestingly, after reading Malthus on population. Both of them got it, were stimulated by the idea from Malthus that um, overpopulation leads to competition. Mm. Um, and Darwin read Malthus early. Wallace read Malthus and thought of it again when he was in a malarial fever dream. Wow. In, in Southeast Asia. And it's, it's a wonderful thought that he was, he was being, having this fever in his overheated brain. There's an awful lot of this that seems to happen in science. I remember yes. in, as an undergraduate reading about Kekulé, the chemist who oh, realised that the, benzene the, the was benzene a ring. ring yes. And he was obviously on something quite yeah. strong when... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't in your college. And uh, <laughs> he, he had this uh, hallucinogenic... Uh, Phase, and he realized then that he saw a snake biting its own tail. And yes. from that then, I suppose the yeah. genius is applying that to yes, your worldview. It's, it's a lovely story. And as you say, people often complain that they get overlooked. I mean, actually, I, I, I mentioned Fleming and Flory with respect to penicillin. But in, in some ways, Fleming is unfairly lauded because Fleming didn't get it. I mean, he, 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 it was Fleming who, who first saw the effect mm. of the penicillin mold. But he didn't do anything with it. He took it out of the bin, right? Uh, something like that. I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was just, he sort of, I think he, he wrote a, a brief note and, and, we, and, and, and published it. And it wasn't until Flory came along, maybe 10 years later, and, 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 and really tumbled how important this was. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah. But it goes back to this idea of scientists are human, and so we, we miss yeah. things, we fight over things, yeah. then there are these moments of wonderful... Um, what would you say, a gentlemanly behavior yes. between two academics. And yet, despite those, um, or in spite of those, those human traits, we, we do have something to contribute to the world. Um, well, and Darwin and Wallace were very gentlemanly. Yes. And, and they're a, a fine example to all of us. Newton wasn't. Oh, no, he was Hook. awful, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he and Hooke, they, they had this rivalry yes. where Newton um, lived uh, long beyond Hooke, and he... His, his goal was to remove all of the portraits of Hook. There's no portrait of Hook in the Royal Society yeah, because indeed. Newton destroyed it. Nice guys, right? <laughs> so, despite that, um, you, you, you give a great account of how scientists and the reasonable thought that they use, and indeed it's not just limited to scientists, other academics use this reasoned thought too. But in, in 2012, you wrote about the Reason Rally in Washington, um, and oh, yes. you, you supported this rally. Would, would you tell us what that was? Yes, um, this was an attempt to arouse the American consciousness about the importance of reason. 
uh, and it was a very successful occasion. It was in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was pouring with rain, but nevertheless, tens of thousands of people turned up, and it was a lot of fun and games, hijinks, and music, jazz bands, and things like that, and a lot of scientists I'm talking. sure some of your critics might uh, say that a, a higher power had perhaps intervened with it, the rain. Well, <laughs> it, it didn't succeed, because the, the, you can see that they were wearing their umbrellas and things, but they were listening to this thing. And, and, and in your piece, you, you, you wrote in a... I was discussing it with a colleague today, and I said, he keeps saying, if you think this, then you shouldn't go to the Reason Rally. You know, um, you, you said, if you're the sort of person that thinks, I want to vote for... Uh, a president who's like the, the regular man or woman, and I'd, I'd rather be pals with them than uh, elect uh, a genius or somebody who's very smart. He said, then perhaps you shouldn't go to the Reason Rally. Yeah. Why did you take that provocative approach? Well, I mean, the, the, the mistrust of experts is something we saw shockingly in the Brexit vote. Michael Gove, who was one of the leading opponents of, of the European Union, said to the British people, don't trust experts. You are the expert here. Um, what a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> when, you, when you go on a plane, you, you rather... <laughs> <laughs> when you have your appendix out, you kind of want your surgeon to learn some anatomy. But you know, yet, when you elect the mayor of London, you're happy to... Or the <laughs> president of the United States. Yeah, and I'm sure we could identify people in Irish public life that we might say similar things about, and I well, won't I'll do leave that. that to you. No, yeah, I yeah. won't. <laughs> but, um, but, but yet they are elected, right? And perhaps there is a growing number of them being elected at the moment. We do see the tide turning a little bit in certain places. But yet Trump is there. Um, yet the, not the, for long, perhaps. Perhaps not. But yet people vote for them and they identify with them. And the voice of the reasonable person and the voice of the scientist is it getting louder? Is it getting quieter? Well, in America, I think we're almost sort of splitting into two species. Mm. Um, because... <laughs> Interesting <laughs> choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to finish by asking you your thoughts on the phrase alternative fact. It's, it's amazing that he gets away with it, isn't it? Isn't I mean, it just, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, alternative facts, yes. Fake news. It's like by putting two words that shouldn't go together, you, you give them legitimacy, don't you? Well, he's hijacked the, the word, the term fake news. Of course, he's, he's the master of fake news himself. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so, no, it's horrific. So where to? Like, what, what, what should we do? So we have a thousand people here, right? Not, and I don't suppose that you have all of the answers, you know, but there are a thousand people here, and we assume that because they chose to come and hear you tonight that they, they believe in the reasonable well, approach. What can we do? Raise consciousness of the fact that the only reason to believe anything is evidence. So. <laughs> And, and, and evidence has to be assessed in a way that you could call scientific, but there are plenty of other things which are, which are similar. I mean, um, moral philosophy, for example, is the application of reason to moral questions, where you can't necessarily actually come up with a, a, an expression of the fundamental moral values that you hold, but once you've got your fundamental moral values, then logical 
moral philosophic reasoning will tell you if you're being inconsistent yes. when you hold this belief and that belief simultaneously, for, for example. So scientific reasoning in the broad sense, um, assessment of evidence using logic to do so. There's no other reason to believe anything. And basing your decisions in life on, on emotion may be fine, but when it's important political decisions, like Brexit, for example, cannot reasonably, cannot be based upon emotion. It's ridiculous to hand over an important, complicated decision like that to people whose reasons for voting are totally uninformed. They're things like, oh, well, I thought it'd be nice to have a change. <laughs> or, I, I prefer the old blue passport to the European purple one. That's the kind of thing that the, the decision, the, the, the kind of reasoning that the decision was, was, was made on. Actively encouraged, as I said, by leading politicians saying, mistrust experts, don't listen to experts. You are the expert in this. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong about Brexit, but I do know that I was too ignorant to be asked to vote. I should not have been asked to vote, and nor should most of the British electorate. Mm. This is a... So, um, with, with, with that great endorsement of this great crowd here, this reasonable crowd, I think uh, we, we'll ask for the house lights to be turned up, and um, we, have, uh, we have some time for you to put questions to Richard. And as, as I said at the beginning, I, I really hope that it's a question. Um, and so we, we, we have people with, with roving mics, and so what we're going to do, Richard, if it's okay, is we'll take a couple from the bottom and a couple from the top. So if I could ask those who are from the concert hall here who have microphones, if you would do me the honor of identifying the, the person with the question and then put your hand up when you're ready because it's a very, very large room. So perhaps we'll, we'll start over on this side, okay, um, on, the, on the ground floor. And perhaps if the others uh, with microphones would, would identify uh, the next questionnaires, please. You can hand the microphones in. Thank you. Okay, so... Um, could you stand up, please, and tell us your name and give us your question? Thank you very much. Uh, hello, my name is Neil. Uh, thanks for the dubious chance to be first. <laughs> uh, hello, Richard. Hello. Great to be here. Uh, I suppose you could call me a long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I have an idea. I've been thinking about it for quite a while, particularly since the, um, the recent terrorist attacks. Um, I'm hearing a lot of politicians asking questions about how they think we can change this. And I think it's definitely going to be down to education, but education with regard to religion. Instead of teaching kids that the religion of their parents is the religion, that maybe we teach children that there are loads of religions I and they should have the chance to make yes. their own choices, but I crucially to teach them also that there's the choice to have no religion. Thank I just wondered what you thought. I, I, I strongly endorse that. I, I am in favour of religious education in the sense of teaching children about religion because you can't understand politics or history or literature without that. But teaching a child you belong to this religion and not that religion because that's the religion of your parents is deeply wicked. 
That should not happen. Labeling a child, a Catholic child or a Protestant child, simply because its parents are Catholic or, or, or Protestant is evil. And when you... Once again, I, w I wouldn't wish to provide a cut-off date, but, but, for a, but, a, but for a very young child, if ever you hear anybody talk about a Catholic child or a Protestant child or a Muslim child, stop them and say, how dare you? That child is too young to know what it feels. Thank you. So we're going to take one from the left now. So if, uh, who has the microphone over here? So the person with the microphone could stand up and give us your name. Thank you very much. I could sit here all night, but I know you've got to go home. One very simple question. In the world of the rational mind, where stands the study of philosophy? Is it irrelevant today in your, in your view? Well, I think of philosophy as systematic, clear thinking. And so, of course, we want more systematic, clear thinking. We all of us try to do it, and scientists try, try to do it. What trained philosophers have in addition is deep historical knowledge of the thought of past centuries. So I like to think of myself as a clear thinker, but I can't hold my own with a philosopher in knowing what Hume said or Berkeley said. Um, and so um, we, 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 we do need philosophers, and I, I value especially some philosophers of science who take the trouble to learn some science, mm. um, like my friend Daniel Dennett, for example, I just single him out, but there are, of course, others. Um, I have so a philosopher in the office next to me in UCD. Her, friend, her name is Anya, and I find arguing with her is the most fulfilling thing. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> I, I, I'm very heartened to hear that there is a now movement called Philosophy for Children, which is, um, rather than arguing using the, the, the points of big thinkers, uh, they, they have a pedagogical approach where children can, can, be, uh, can learn to think philosophically. And I think uh, it, it will do more for science at, at an earlier stage than perhaps any other subject. And that, that ability to think rationally and defend your point of view, but also have an openness to changing your mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to take a question from the, the top up here now. So if the person with the microphone could stand up, please, and tell us your name. I, we can barely see you. Hello. <laughs> um, I'm Joanna. Hi. Um, I'm a science student at the minute. And you were talking about how science, other than other streams in life, don't look at bias and it's like with their double blind tests and everything. And I was just wondering in terms of, you know, feminism and giving women more opportunities, why do you think science still fails along with other streams to give, to give women these opportunities where they're giving men why do you think scientists who are so rational continue to fail? Sure. Well, I'm very sorry to hear that they do. Um, um, I, I, I obviously deplore any, any kind of discrimination of, of, that, of that sort. And, and uh, I, I didn't... I'm, I'm not aware that science is any worse than any other walk of life in doing that. But if it is, I'm, I deeply regret it. I suppose maybe, I don't wish to put words in your mouth, but shouldn't we know better, I suppose, is, uh, since, since we yes, are rational? Yes, I, yeah. I, I, I suppose we should. I mean, I'm passionately against discrimination on, on any, any, in, in science on any grounds other than ability in science. Indeed, here, here. Um, can we have a question from uh, this side of the house, please? Is, uh, Seamus McKenna. Can you stand up there, Seamus? I yes, can. this is me standing up. Where? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I was looking up there. 
My apologies, Seamus. Carry on. Uh, yes, uh, Professor <laughs> Dawkins, uh, given the fun and games that have been taking place in British politics uh, in the last few days, and given that the uh, Democratic Unionist Party looks like it's going to support uh, the government, and given that the Democratic Unionist Party is made up of religious fundamentalists, are you concerned that uh, very soon now there'll be pressure to have creationism taught in British schools? <laughs> yes. Um, the Giant's Causeway is only 4,000 years old, that kind of thing. Um, My first um, understanding of the Giant's Causeway was a fable that we were taught in school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, of course, it's, it's pathetic, isn't it? I mean, this, this ridiculous hubris with which she called an, an election thinking she was going to get a landslide. Well, it damn well serves her right. <laughs> and the present situation with being propped up by the DUP obviously cannot last. Um, so it, 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 it's a last desperate shake of the dice to try to do something, but it's, it's not going to work, and I suppose we'll probably have to have another election. Um, You're getting used to them now, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, 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 maybe we'll take a question from the balcony up on this side, please, if, you, if the person with the microphone could stand up. Hi. Um, hi there. Hello. Am I, can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Hi, my name is Michael. Um, no doubt in your personal life, you know, people will ask you or more kind of... Um... Michael, can I ask you to hold the microphone up to your mouth? Thank yeah. you. Is that better? That's much better. So, uh, perhaps, if, I promise this is a question and I'll be <laughs> as concise as possible. You're not a philosopher then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a, a lecturer who had done some anthropological research in Australia and had been speaking to an, a, a member of an Aboriginal tribe. And it seemed, it was talk, having a discussion with this person about the totem, and this person was explaining what the totem was for them, and that it was a kangaroo, and specifically that there was a mark on her body, which was, a, was as a result of her father having shot a kangaroo uh, before she was born. And I responded to my lecture saying, please tell me that what we're talking about here is someone who is retroactively extrapolating a meaning from the mythology of her family and erroneously, perhaps metaphorically, using it to explain a mark on her body that perhaps has a meaning to her. Mm -hmm. now, no doubt you've come across similar things, but what I find is that when you approach somebody with that and challenge them on it, as you suggest that we should, you're met with quite a lot of a resistance. I find that, for example, when you say to someone you don't believe in heaven, that they can find that to be a threat because they're not hearing that you have a difference in belief, but they're hearing that their loved one, for whom perhaps they miss terribly, is not waiting for them. And so my question is, is how do you get around those obstacles? Because I agree that we should challenge that sort of discourse when we hear it. Thank you. It is, it is difficult to separate one's emotional reaction from reason, from rationality. Um, I think if you argue rationally with somebody like, like that, they will actually eventually see the point um, that no matter how much you desire there to be a heaven, uh, because you will see your friends and relatives and so on, um, desire cannot translate into 
into fact, into, into, into reality. The, the universe doesn't actually care uh, what we want and what, what makes us feel good. Uh, and if, if somebody really is incapable of seeing that, then I, I'm not sure, I, th I feel a bit, a bit of despair. Um, I think I rather like the, the story of Steven Pinker, not story, the idea of Steven Pinker when he's talking about faith, re religious faith, belief giving you consolation. And he said, well, maybe it does give you consolation, but if it's not true, why would you want empty consolation? And he uses the analogy of being chased by a tiger. And you may passionately believe that the tiger is a rabbit. <laughs> but actually, it's a tiger, and your belief is not going to save you. It may be consoling. Hence how big the rabbit is, I suppose. <laughs>